Well, good morning, everyone. Once again, as we always say, and we truly mean it, thank you so much for joining us as we study the Word of God. This morning, this is the second lesson in our new series talking about Christ fulfilling the threefold office or threefold ministry or threefold mandate. You know, I have to give it to you two or three different ways because I think that there are a number of ways of looking at it from the perspective of how the Bible presents it. Looking at Christ who fulfills this threefold office or mandate or ministry. And this morning we're going to be looking at his role as king, as God's royal agent upon the earth. And as we do this, let's remember a little bit from last week. And by the way, if you did not get to get, be here last week, and if you did not hear last week's lesson, I want to strongly encourage you to get it online or CD, whatever it is that you do. Why? Because you see, any time a teaching begins or if you read a book, the best thing to do is to make sure that you get the introduction under your belt. So when you read a new book, look at the introduction. Look at what the purpose of the author is. He generally outlines the structure of the book, the purpose of the book, the way he goes about presenting his material, and kind of gives an overview of what this book is going to be about. So when you are actually reading the various chapters, you are reading it within a context of understanding the whole picture in a very general way rather than, okay, chapter 1 and chapter 2 and we're still not getting the picture. And you want to see everything in the Bible from the perspective of God's overarching purpose. And that's why we always emphasize Genesis 1.26. Let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. Everything in the Bible needs to be understood and walked out within the context of God's overarching purpose. And everything in my life and in your life needs to be applied to how well am I doing? Is my life achieving this overarching purpose of God? So let's be those kinds of students. So as we do this this morning and as we continue with lesson number two, remember why the role, why the three roles? God created Adam to be a man who upon the earth would be displaying the image of God, which is what? It has a lot to do with a lot of things, but most basically, at least as I understand the word, the image of God that God is desiring to portray is that he is a plurality of persons. In the one being of God, there exists three distinct divine persons, each sharing and having the same nature, substance, and attributes. There is nothing different among these three persons of the nature and of the substance and of the attributes and of the eternality and of the power. Each one of them possesses equally the same. But the three persons are distinguished how? 
in the way they relate to one another in this community through their roles of love. That's how they relate. So how do I know who the Father is? I must look not at, is he divine? Yeah. Is the Spirit divine? Yes. Is the Son divine? Well, there's no distinction, and I can't figure out who's who. Well, does the Father have all power? Yes. Does the Son have all power? Yes. Does the Holy Spirit have all power? Yes. Well, then I can't make the distinction which person of the Godhead we're speaking about and which person of the Godhead is involved in this particular activity. So where must I look to make a distinction? Where has God given us the distinction? In his roles, in the roles of the persons. And so in Adam, God is showing that this creator is not a single person God as you have in Jehovah's Witness, as you have in Islam, as you have in all these other religions, either single person or multiplicity of individual, distinct, different persons. This is not our God. Our God is one, but existing as three persons through roles and relationship. And so Adam is to be manifesting this image of God, this revelation of the most unique thing about God and the most significant thing about God that ever is and ever will be, his triunity, three as one. And he does it through roles. Here are three mandates. Here are three, the three ways I want you to walk out in life and in your walking in each of these roles, you will manifest each person of the Trinity, accentuating each one in a particular aspect of that role, but also the other two being included in that particular role. So Adam is given the mandates to rule, to bring forth God's word as prophet, and to minister in the garden as priest. Adam fails. Jesus now is given that as the second Adam. You remember the last Adam, 1 Corinthians 12, sorry, 1 Corinthians 15, 45. You remember that? And now we're getting into the three roles. And today we deal with the role of king or ruler. And in this role, Jesus functioned as the ruler or the king upon this earth is for the purpose of bringing about the revelation that the father is the ruler or the king of glory or the, if you would, the leader, the role of taking on leadership in the community of God. So Jesus' ministry as king focuses on the father's role as the leader in the Trinity. Now, you understand that. Very important to understand that because we'll see that his role as prophet focuses on the Spirit's role of ministering the Word. And then when he functions in his, in his role as priest, he will be focusing on his own role as the sacrificial lamb for the sin of the world. So we understand what we're talking about here. We're not just talking about Jesus doing three things. We're talking about a comprehensive revelation 
a comprehensive revelation through these three roles of who God is and how God functions. Father, thank you for this. This is an astounding revelation because you are the only astounding, awesome being in all creation. Father, no one else should ever be referred to as astounding and awesome. You're the only one. Minister to us today as is your will by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look at now the New Testament as it testifies to Jesus as God's royal agent. Jesus is fulfilling the role of king by referring to him primarily in the New Testament with the word Lord, L-O-R-D. It's used of Jesus about a hundred times. And so when we look at the New Testament, we will see over a hundred references to Jesus is Lord, the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Christ. So that connected to this man and his ministry is this word Lord. Now, the Greek, in the, Hebrew, in the Greek here in the New Testament for Lord is kurios, K-U-R-I-O-S. It means one who has indisputed uh, uh, authority over someone. Caesar was kurios. He was the Lord of the world, right? He was the Lord. He was the, the ruler of all the Roman Empire. No one contradicted Caesar's word. Whatever Caesar wanted to do, Caesar did because he was the supreme earthly authority ruling the nations. But Jesus is also called and referred to with this same word, with the same word. And it was the translation, the word kurios in the Greek is the translation for God's holy name, Yahweh, from the Hebrew. And so in the Hebrew is Yahweh. And then brought over into the Greek is called kurios. It's the same reference. There is a connection there. So Kurios is one who has supreme authority, undisputed master and ruler. So anytime you see the word Lord connected with Jesus, it's just not a title, Mr. Jesus, friend Jesus. It is a proclamation. It is an announcement that Jesus Christ is God's royal and ruling and reigning agent who in that role is focusing on or bringing to revelation the majesty and the majestic rule of God the Father over all. And we'll see how all of this winds up in a few weeks when we bring it all back together again and look at the Trinity again, look at how Jesus has done that, and then look at us, how we are now involved in the very same three-role ministry. Because just to let you know, we are now the ones who are on the earth, God's royal rulers, prophets, and priests. But you'll have to see that later. Remember what 1 Peter says about that. Some of you remember in 1 Peter 2, something about that. With the use of this title, with the use of the word Lord, the New Testament affirms that Jesus is the one about whom God spoke when he gave this prophecy about David's rule. So let's look at 2 Samuel 7, 11 to 13. Years before Jesus is born, thousand years before Jesus is born, God gives a revelation, a pronouncement, a prediction of what he will do through the Davidic or the David line. And so the Lord declares to you, David, this is the 
Samuel coming to David, giving David the word of God as to himself, his own significance, and to the significance of his line or his lineage. The Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. Remember, David wants to build a house for the Lord. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, in other words, when you're dead, I will raise up your offspring. Remember the seed. Remember offspring, seed. When every time you see that in relation to prophetic revelation and fulfillment, you must remember the origin of it is Genesis 3.15. Remember the seed of the woman. Don't read your Bible in isolation from other areas of Scripture. Bring all that you know of Scripture to bear upon all the other Scriptures. Your seed, your descendant. I like the word seed because... You know, I think that's just best for me to help me to remember. Your seed, there will be a seed. We were looking for the seed. Well, what seed? Who is the seed? Genesis 3.15. He is a man who will crush Satan's authority. Therefore, he will be a man of authority. Because only a man of greater authority than Satan can crush Satan's authority. So all of a sudden, even in that, you see kingship, rule, royalty, authority of God. And he will, I will give to your offspring, your seed, to succeed you, who will come from your own body. So here we're talking about a man. And I will establish his kingdom, K-I-N-G, kingdom. A royal rule. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now this is fulfilled, you remember, immediately upon David's death. Solomon ascends the throne. And by the way, it's called the throne in 2 Samuel 29, I think it is. It is Solomon sits on the throne of God over Israel. This is not just an earthly throne. This is a manifestation that in Solomon, God is showing that he will raise up one who is greater than Solomon. You remember what Jesus said, who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And so Solomon fulfills this in type and in, in uh, um, some kind of way. Well, I can't find my word. Um, a little bit. I can't find my word on that. But Solomon, who fulfills it immediately in his own reign, and of course there are problems later on in his reign, is a type of who will come. He shows in the glory of his kingdom and who he is and what he does by building the house of God. Remember the temple. That there is coming one whose kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. So we know Solomon isn't the, the uh, help me to remember, Lord. I'm getting my words. Give, give me a moment. Solomon isn't the person in whom this is fulfilled, but it speaks past that because it will be your kingdom will be what? An everlasting kingdom, a forever kingdom. So God gives this prophecy years before to say that there's one who will come and this one will be Lord. This one will be king. This one will establish a kingdom. So in Luke 1, 30 to 33, we see that this promise comes to fruition. Now remember, when we read our Bible, let's not read it in isolation from what has already been written. So when we read Luke 1, 30 to 33, let's read it in perspective and remembering 2 Samuel 7, 11 to 13. Let's remember that God has promised that a king will come, a king who will forever rule over his kingdom. A king is coming. 
a king from the line of David. And the angel said to Mary, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Yeshua, Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne. Remember the throne in the second Samuel. Will give him the throne to his father David, of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Everybody say goodbye to Atticus. Make sure you come back, Atticus. <laughs> we know you don't want to leave, sweetheart, but okay. But you see what's happening. You see that in that announcement, in that announcement, it's not disassociated from the promise. Do you see this? Nothing in the Bible is disassociated from anything else. It is an announcement that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And then it is given various places. We won't trace that out again. And then in 2 Samuel 7, you see, it's very clearly the Lord says, I'm going to give David a son, and that son shall establish a kingdom. And of his kingdom there will be no end, and he shall reign forever. And then the announcement, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. You see how it bring, comes together. So those who say the Bible isn't consistent and the internal integrity isn't there and you can't believe it, won't even comment about it. <laughs> Let's also notice verse 14 of 2 Samuel 7. He says in verse 14, I will be his father and he will be my son. When Solomon was born, David called Solomon his son Solomon. Nathan came to David and said, the Lord gives him the name of Jedidiah. Jedidiah. What does that mean? The name Jedidiah means the beloved of Yah. Jedidiah. It means my beloved. Solomon is the one who will be type or a foreshadowing of the beloved son who will be born as a king to establish a kingdom. And that kingdom shall have no end. That's what's happening here. So this promise was fulfilled partially in the birth and in the announcement of Solomon. You remember that. <clears throat> but it looked forward to the day of the birth and the enthronement of the greater than Solomon. Remember, there was a greater than Solomon among you. Matthew chapter 12. So let's look at Jesus' royal testimony, royal birth. Let's look at Jesus, the testimony of Jesus' royal birth in the New Testament. Now, remember what we saw. Let's repeat it, and let's now bring up what we have seen in the Old Testament all the way forward again. Do not be afraid, for you, Mary, for you have found favor with God, for you will be giving birth to the king, the son of David, who will rule over the house of Jacob forever. Okay, fine. So what happens? When Jesus is actually born, what happens? Luke 2, 8 to 14. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. You see, we have to get out of this mentality that this is just another sweetheart kid. This is not just some little sweetie pie. This is the mighty fulfillment of God's purpose that began in Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in the creation, 
and then in the creation of man for this purpose. And then man fell, Genesis 3, 6, and he ate. And immediately God sets forth, sets in motion, immediately God sets in motion a regathering of that purpose. And here's the announcement. After all these years, after all this activity, after all this proclamation, after all these prophecies, after all this history, finally, I will have upon the earth my son <clears throat> who will be my perfect image bearer and who will reign as king upon the earth for my glory. That's what you have here. So when we hear these words, when we read these words, let's not just read them with Christmas in mind. Let's read them with this in mind. John 1.14. What is John 1.14? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, that glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In that verse... As we'll see in this announcement, that verse is this announcement, is gathered up in John 1.14, is gathered up everything that God has proclaimed to do in the Old Testament. Everything. Don't read your Bible in small ways. This is a monumental revelation of our great God. Amen? And so what does verse John 1.14 look like? What does it look like? And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were filled with fear. Hmm. And the angel said, Fear not, behold, I bring to you good news of a great joy. Whose joy? The Father's joy. The Father's joy. Finally, finally, my son will vindicate my name and will establish my name upon the earth and among men as great. A great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you was born this day in the city of David a Savior who was Christ, the anointed Christ, the anointed, the Messias, the Messiah. And this will be a sign to you, you will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men, those whom God is well pleased. Why all the celebration? Because finally upon the earth, God has his Adam. God has the man who will fully, finally, and forever fulfill God's creative purpose. Amen? Matthew 2, 1 through 3. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. God is gathering in all kind of people to bring a testimony that this is my royal son. For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. So you see, the announcement of the king. Jesus' royal rule is also the testimony of his baptism. Remember, Jesus is about 30 years old when a man became 
functioning as a rabbi, 30 years old. That's the context of that, he, a rabbi, a teacher. Jesus goes into the wilderness and is baptized, remember, by John the Baptist. And Matthew 3, 16, 17 picks it up. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. First time the heavens were immediately opened personally to any man upon the earth since Adam's fall. First time. And he saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove. Remember, the dove came out of the heavens and coming a rest upon him. And behold, a voice from heaven, this is my Jedediah. This is who Solomon was typifying. This is my royal son. Here he is with whom I am well pleased. You see, these verses are bigger than what we thought because they gather up everything that has been said and done and is the fulfillment of everything from the very beginning. God has his royal ruling agent upon the earth, finally. Jesus' rule is the testimony of his ministry. And I'm going to go through these quickly because you have them, I think, in your uh, outline. Jesus is Lord. Remember what Lord means. What does Lord mean? It's the Greek kurios, K-U-R-I-O-S. Remember these things. It is a Greek kurios, and it means one who has indisputed authority. It is the master, the king. This is the supreme authority on earth. As Adam was to be and failed through sin, now Jesus, the Son of God, is God's ruling supreme authority on earth manifesting and accentuating God the Father's supreme ruling authority in heaven. Jesus is Lord of the kingdom of God, Mark 1, 14 to 15. Jesus' ministry is the inauguration of the kingdom of God. With his coming, the kingdom is inaugurated. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That's Jesus' first sermon as recorded in Mark. What is he saying? The kingdom what? Of God, what is at hand? What does that mean? I am the king, and in my presence upon the earth, in my physical presence upon the earth, is the establishment of the kingdom. Because, you see, Jesus is the king, but he's not a king in and of himself and by himself. He is the king of a kingdom. He has a people. So he announces that immediately in Mark. The kingdom of God is here. How do we know that? Because the king is here. But how do we know he's the king? How do we know, Michael, when he says the kingdom of God, I'm the king? How do we know that? Well, anybody can say, I'm king, Chris. Anybody can say that. I'm the king, I'm the king, I'm the king. Anybody can say that. So in order to manifest the reality and the truth of it, Jesus will not only say it, but he will what? Prove it. He will prove it. Because he will prove it through his signs and wonders. He will prove, I'm telling you I'm the king. Gordon says, how do I know? Watch me. For only a king can do what I do. Jesus is Lord over the demons. So he starts off with the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they may not see the light of the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus, uh, in, uh, who, is, who is the image of God. So he starts off 
showing his power over the God of this world. He says, I'm the king. And the ruler of this world first is going to be shown to not have the authority. I'm here. And I'm going to show you who's boss, who's the king, who's the ruler, where you should put your trust and allegiance and submission on his shoulders. For he is the great burden bearer, the great Shechem. I'm the king. How you know? Watch. And I'm just going to give you one scripture of each one of these, but the Bible is filled with them. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? You see, the demons see and recognize and confess what the world does not see, recognize, and confess. They know who is among them. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. You're the king. I know you're the king. <clears throat> and they quaked. They sweated. They were worried. They were fearful <laughs> that every demon in heaven, beginning with Satan himself, all the way down to the least demon, would feel that way about each one of us. And to the extent that we are walking obediently in God and in Christ and exercising our mandate as God's royal agents upon the earth, Satan and his gang will quake. The reason they don't is because of our duplicity in the things of this world. Why do you think Satan is always alluring us into the issues of the world and weakening us with the, the, the life of the world? To debilitate our ability, to weaken our ability to stand against him as Jesus did. This man didn't bow to the world and to the ways of the world. I know who you are. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. He didn't have a discussion. He didn't go into theological whatevers. He didn't run. He didn't quake. He didn't, he didn't plead anything. He didn't start incantations and all that kind of stuff. He, he said, come out. And what happened? The demon came out. The demon came out. The unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out a loud voice came out. He said, I'm the king. Well, who says so? Watch. When people want to know if you're a Christian, you don't have to go into long apologetic discourses. And, and I agree. I, I, I have no problem with apologetics. I often, you know, will discuss with people. But that's not where the power is. The power is this. Watch. So when I'm under fire, I do not burn up. When I'm under pressure, I do not get smashed. When I am afraid, I do not cower. Why? Because we are God's royal people. Amen? Watch. Watch. Certainly there's a testimony. Obviously, you've been in here long enough to know that. Watch. It's a show and tell issue, isn't it? Show and tell. 
Jesus is also Lord over diseases. Matthew, Mark again. This is a, a series of little uh, stories in Mark. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her. And she began to serve them. Am I king? Watch. And at the conclusion of that chapter, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. See, Mark is saying, I'm just telling you a couple things. I'm just telling you a couple things. Let me tell you something. There are all kind of stuff going on, but we don't have the time to tell you all that. Why? <clears throat> you see, because it suffices that just one example in each of these areas is all that's necessary. Jesus is Lord over death. Luke 7, 11, 15. <clears throat> and afterward he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and, was con and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, see, Lord, 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 all over the place. He had compassion on her and said to her, don't weep. Then he came up and touched the coffin. <gasps> if you know anything about Leviticus, that should stop you. If you know anything about Leviticus, any physical contact with death and disease mandated that that person withdraw from the congregation of Israel for a period of time of cleansing. You don't touch the stuff. Now think about it. They're going down the street, and Jesus sees them. And nobody's near the coffin. Nobody's going to touch this thing, you know. And Jesus comes up and puts his hand on <gasps> Oh, <laughs> what in the world? Why? Because he's not afraid of death, because he's king and Lord even over death. And he said, young man, I, I say to you, get up. And the man got up. Remember a similar story in John 11. Lazarus had been dead four days. He stinks. The three-day thing is the Jewish had a tradition that in three days, you know, there could still be life. But by the fourth day, he's dead. He's dead. He's dead. It's proof. Jesus purposely waited to prove that this man was actually dead. He says, roll away the stone. <gasps> what <are> you? <laughs> Think about it. You're in a funeral. Your mama just died. Your brother. Somebody just died. And the man walks up and says, open the coffin. What are you going to do? What is he going to do this time? This guy's weird, I know. He's such a loud mouth and a weirdo. He's saying, Jesus, this and Jesus, that. He walks up to the coffin and lays his hand on the coffin, and he says, Brother John, wake up. I mean, before you can get to this man, you want to arrest him, but before you can get to him, he does a great work. And Jesus, the stone rolls away. He walks up to the entrance of that cave looks into the entrance of the cave, the light of the world, facing the darkness of death. Not like 
he walks up as the king of glory, as the master of life. Because he's already told Martha and Mary, I am the resurrection and I am the life. Oh, yeah, who says so? Watch. Watch. And he stands there and he faces the last enemy that shall be destroyed. Remember in Revelation 20, death is thrown into the lake of fire. You remember that? You read that? And he says, death no more shall you have dominion, rule, authority over my people because death's dominion and rule is from Satan's, remember, authority. It's his weapon. Hebrews 2.14. He says, Lazarus. Now, good thing he called the name because that he just said, come forth every Tom, Dick, and Harry who've been in there is coming forth. He says, Lazarus what? Come forth. And Lazarus came forth. He's ruler, Lord over judgment. Remember the time the man was sick on the bed and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven you. What are you kidding? Only God can forgive sins. Come on, Jesus. Your theology is bad. He is the ruler of this world, of this cosmos. Only the king can exonerate or dismiss charges. Right? Only the president can sign the thing that you're out of jail. Is that right? You know how this works? Or whoever is in charge, the governor, whatever. Wait a minute. You're doing the act of God. Who gives you this right? He says that you may know that the Son of Man has authority, rulership on this earth, that you may know it. Get up and walk. And he gets up. Gets up. See, Jesus is the Lord over nature. Remember in Luke 8, he says, let's go to the other side. We're going to the other side. How many of us know that in Christ, we are going to the other side? Amen. We're going to the other side. And there comes a great storm. Satan will always oppose and try to get you to fear getting to the other side. We're going to sink before we get to the other side, don't you see? And Jesus is the king of glory in the boat. And he's snoozing. And they wake up. Carest thou not that we perish? We're drowning. These are fishermen. How many storms have they been in in their life? But this is a demonic storm. How do I know? Because Jesus stood up and he rebuked. He said, be muzzled. And all of a sudden, and then the men in the boat were more afraid of him. What? manner of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey his will he's king I don't know what kind of tossing and turning you are in or I'm in let me say it this way I care to one extent but I don't care the issue is not whether we care about it the issue is, is there the king in the boat with us? And if he is, there is no way that Satan can sink the boat. He may do a lot of natural damage, but we're getting to the other side of the shore.
even if a Democrat is elected or even if Donald Trump goes in or even if the stock market tanks, we're getting to the other side of the shore. We're going to get there. Jesus is acknowledged by the demons. Remember that we said that. He is Lord in his teachings. He taught with authority. He proclaims himself to be Lord. You call me Lord, Lord, and so I am, he says. And Jesus is Lord is, and I'll close with this, is, is firmly established. You may not have gotten the revelation here, or the connection rather. His favorite term, self-term, was what? Son of man. I don't know how many times, I forgot, 50 times or something like that. He, the son of man, the son of man, the son of man, the son of man. He refers to himself as the son of man. Well, what's so, okay, what's the big deal? Why does he do that? Because you see, there is a prophecy in Daniel. In Daniel where? Chapter, what seven is? I mean, what seven is it? What chapter is it? I already gave it away. What seven is it? I said, <laughs> okay, kill that. Boy, the teacher gave the answer to him on that. Thank you, teach. <laughs> There is a prophecy in Daniel 7. Daniel has been given visions of these great four empires. Nasty, hateful, horrible. Oh, they're going to destroy his empires. He's given all that. Oh, what are we going to do? What's going to happen? Where will we go? Okay. Then in 7.13, he's given a vision of the climax. In the first 12 verses, all the horrible things and the activities of the God of this world through the empires of Babylon, remember, and Persia and Greece and Rome. Remember that? You, you read the Bible probably. And so the Lord says, let me show you something over and against that. And he shows them the throne room of God. He who sits in the heavens laughs them to scorn. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, that's God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him, to the son of man, was given dominion. What is that? Royal rule and glory and a kingdom that all People's nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Remember the prophecy in 2 Samuel 7. So with the use of the Son of Man, Jesus is proclaiming that he is that Son of Man who is given this everlasting dominion and kingdom, thus fulfilling 2 Samuel 7, 14, and fulfilling Genesis 3, 15, and making the conclusion of the whole reason why God in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. So in each of these areas of ministry, prophet, priest, and king, the kingdom today, the kingship, Jesus is fulfilling the royal mandate office of king by exercising dominion and rule, which you see in Genesis 1.28. He tells Adam, God tells Adam, dominion and rule. Remember, be a king. And God's perfect image bearer, Jesus fulfills that. So we'll, next week we'll talk about Jesus' fulfillment of the office of prophet. Thank you. <clears throat>